0: Well, hi, everyone. Good to see you tonight. Pastor Tim and I talked on the phone maybe a year and a half ago or so, and he was just gracious to give me an open invitation to come down anytime. and then when Tammy called recently and just asked if I'd come down, or wrote me, I guess, uh, here I am. Good to be with you all. Uh... We've been seeing a lot of healings lately. It just seems to get easier and easier for some reason. I don't know what all the factors are, but I I want to pray for you tonight. If you're hurting in your body, it's not working the way God designed it. I'd love to be able to pray for you at the end of the service tonight. Um, before I get into the message, I brought some books. Uh, I don't make any money from the books. We just go back into publishing more of them. And so, but they are powerful, powerful tools. We're hearing amazing things out of some of these books. There's one on forgiveness back there that uh, small groups have been gathering around, and it's brought revival to places. And, and uh, a guy just called me this week from Chile and said it brought revival to his church. And uh, so they're stepping up to publish it so it can go all over Chile and all their churches. And so... Um, there's another one back there I think is new that would be helpful for you is called following the eyes of your heart. We all have eyes here but we also have eyes in our heart. And wherever your eyes go, whatever you focus on, if you focus on a negative, your feelings follow your eyes. If you focus on the Lord, you focus on the things of faith, the things of his love, things of his favor. Well, when you focus on that, your feelings follow your eyes and it 's a real simple concept, but we 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 miss it all the time it 's a powerful book on on how God set me free from uh, fear and depression and uh if you 've struggled with that or you're wanting to work with people who struggle with that it's it 's a powerful textbook on how to set people free and so there 's a bunch of goodies back there and if you get time to do that at the end of the the meeting, that'd be great. Anyway, thank you, Pastor Tim, for having me down. When the Apostle Paul left the cleanliness of his town, became a missionary, went out into Gentile land, that's just totally pagan, idols on every corner, filthy as can be, open sin, no law, so there's a a sense of lawlessness, just anything goes. And he went in there practically by himself. A small team of, of young people went with him, and he was sent in by the Lord like a bubble of light in a sea of darkness, and the place was absolutely polluted. Spiritually, dark, dark as can be. When he got in there, he brought light, life, liberty. And within a short time, people were saying, this is is the guy that's turned the world upside down. Because everywhere he went, in the darkness, light happened. Freedom happened. People's lives got cleaned up. They just lived differently. They looked differently. Not, not in any special garment, but their faces were shiny. And the God does a deep work in our like in our life. And there's a transfer from one kingdom to another. And that was his mission: was to get people to trade, one kingdom for another, one sense of lordship for another, and and that was his calling. That was what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus, and that's what he carried everywhere he went. You can imagine starting a baby church with these brand new baby Christians surrounded by complete idolatry. And and the government is completely broken and run by, by people who live such such awful, awful lives. I've I've just been um, in light of the the Easter story, just learning a bit more about the leadership of Rome and it was unbelievably uh corrupt and and, and just filled with sin that's hardly even I don't even want to talk about it it's so bad. So the government's completely broken, society's broken. And uh, witchcraft is normal, sorcery is normal, fortune-telling, all those kinds of things are normal. It's part of the culture. So you get a group of brand new baby Christians, and then you leave them. In some cases, they didn't have qualified pastors. They would pick some of the older men in the congregation, and they would look after the baby Christians. But they're all baby Christians in a sense. And he did this everywhere he went. And he entrusted that work, entrusted those churches, those young lives. He entrusted it to a concept that the Lord gave him. And he said, If there's if if a church will have a half a dozen things built in, half a dozen things, a handful of things that they don't compromise on. The devil cannot get his clutches on them. He cannot have his way. He cannot stop them. He cannot ruin the work. He can't. It's impossible. And it's not a list of 20 things or 30 things. It's a list of, like, seven things. Powerful, powerful tools. I, I've traveled to some of, the, some of the neediest places on earth and went into the uh, communist broken world after the, the Iron Curtain fell. I was one of the first people to get in there. I'd been praying for that place for a long time. And, and it was exactly what I just described. And I didn't spend five minutes doing warfare praying or waving banners or wearing special prayer shawls or no beads, no no special oil, no special nothing. I just knew that I could walk in there with these handful of things in my heart and nothing could stop me. Nothing could stop me from having work start, churches start, Did the same thing in India, went in there by myself. First time I went in, I went in riding on the back of a motorcycle. My interpreter riding, driving the motorcycle, and we just went from village to village preaching the gospel, seeing people healed and set free and saved and set demons cast out. And and there's just thousands of believers that are part of our group over there now. But nothing could stop it. There was no formula. And I'd like to teach this to you. This was what, what he taught was written to a church. Would you be interested in a sermon along this line? Why don't you turn with me to Ephesians? It's just Ephesians chapter 6. When Paul was among the Thessalonians, see, they were brand new babies, brand new babies, probably not quite a month old, and he got run out of town, and he went to the next town and started a church there, and they ran him out of that town within probably a week or so. Then he ran to the next town and, and wrote them a letter called 1 Thessalonians. And it's amazing. it's amazing what he wrote. It's amazing what he didn't write. He wrote in there everything essential, everything that new baby Christians would need. And so uh, this, this concept can also be found there in a different format. But he says in verse 10, chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong, strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Some translation says the entire armor of God. It's, it's whole. It's complete. Uh, he doesn't, you don't have to add one single thing to it. I, I've been in churches where they believe that if they wave banners, it's certain banners, certain color banners, it'll stop the devil. If they wave other banners, it releases the Holy Spirit. Well, if you believe that, and of course it's not in this list, but if you believe that, <laughs> after a while you can't stop waving the banner. How could you stop? It would, allow, it would allow the devil to walk right in and do something. How could you stop waving a blue banner that the Holy Spirit couldn't move? And we buy such ridiculous concepts, and that's that's commonly taught. That's an amazing, that's like taught as a revelation, like a high Revelation, well, Paul missed it. It's not in his list here. He says, put on the entire armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the mental trickery of the devil. So he's writing this to a church. we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. People are not our enemies. But against principalities and powers and against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in a, in the evil day. And haven't done all to stand. Now, normally, when people teach this, what they do is they 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 illustrate it with Roman armor, uh, an actual helmet and breastplate and sword, and something I, I realize um, when we emphasize that stuff, we we de-emphasize the real issues. So I don't want to even get into that tonight. But, but let me just say this. He says if you'll walk in truth, and he's not talking about just Bible truth. He's not talking about just walking in the Bible. He's talking about walking in integrity, walking in honesty with each other, being honest. The devil can't get his hooks in you. If you've got a group of people who live in a high level of, of truth with each other, The devil can't work because everything he does is is deception. Everything he does is crooked. Everything he does is deviant. Everything he does is below the radar. Everything he does is is a lie. He can't work in truth, not complete truth, not complete truth in terms of relationship, being honest with each other. He said, "Walk walk in honesty, walk in integrity. Then he says, We need to be right with God, and we need to be right with each other. And if we'll live in a a kind of rightness where we treat each other right, and we relate to God on his terms of righteousness, the devil cannot do anything. And I I hear people say, well, there's, there's stuff happening in our church, and it's not right. The way we treat each other is not right. The way we uh, relate to each other is not right. I I remember meeting one guy who was a Mennonite and wasn't going to church, and I was trying to get him to come to church, and he wouldn't come to church. He was a used car salesman. And, And I said, how come you don't come to church? His brother was a pastor, and he grew up in the church. I said, how come you don't come to church? He said, I'll tell you why. He said, everybody comes here, they want to buy my cars, and they want the Mennonite price. I said, what's that? He says, they want, they want it. They'll say, I'll give you 5% or maybe 10% above what you paid for it. What did you pay for it? Tell me what it cost you, and then I'll, I'll give you. He said, they don't want me to eat. He said, it's not right. And it's not. It's not right. If you've got a Christian businessman, a plumber, or a guy who fixtures your furnace or a mechanic, Pay him. Give him what's right. Treat him right. What he'll give you in, in kind isn't some great discount. What he'll give you is integrity. You won't get ripped off. That's worth, that's worth paying him more. <laughs> he won't take advantage of you. So, if we don't treat each other right, and we don't treat God right, and, and treating each other right is huge to him, so much so he says, look, if you come to the altar and you're offering your sacrifice, you're presenting your gift before God, and it comes to your mind that there's a breach, there's a breakdown in relationship, He's go make that right. Make that right. Then come offer your gift. God would rather that we have right relationships and we know how to relate to each other in a righteous way than your tithe or your gifts or your sacrifice or your song or your worship or your hymn singing or whatever it is. He'd rather have you living right with each other than any kind of worship you have to offer. It's huge to him. Part of the reason is he didn't just die for our sins. He died for fellowship. He died to create a body that we could be living together well the only thing that makes that whole thing work is a sense of righteousness it's it's big to god i preached something somewhere on the other side of christmas and i remember going home thinking that was a good sermon And then about two in the morning, I woke up, and the sermon kind of came back to me with a face attached to it. And I knew that there's a brother that I I had nothing more to do with. We used to have fellowship, but now we don't have any fellowship at all. I just had this, this sense. I didn't have to get beat over the head to know that his face and that sermon go hand in glove, and the Lord's bringing it back around to me that He wasn't asking me to become best friends with him. He wasn't asking me, everything had been forgiven, but I was avoiding him. I I wasn't interested in seeing him again. The idea came, it's Christmas time. Why don't you call him and say Merry Christmas? Then ask him to meet you for coffee. I didn't want to. I told the Lord, I don't want to. I don't like him. I don't want to be with him. The last thing I saw of him, I didn't like that. What I heard, what I saw, I'm not interested in being with him. I've forgiven him, but I don't want a relationship with him. But this sermon was so good (laughs) that I couldn't enjoy it because it was speaking to me, and I couldn't enjoy it. I couldn't preach it again. I couldn't, if I didn't live it, if I didn't act it, it wouldn't be right. So I called the guy up. He was completely surprised to hear from me, and I said, would you want to meet for coffee? He said, absolutely. We didn't get into all the details of the reasons why we don't fellowship anymore. We didn't have to, but it He's a grandpa, so he told me grandpa stories. I told him grandpa stories. We just talked about new jobs and life and all the stuff that's happened over the past 11, 12 years since we've seen each other. And that was it was just as pleasant as that. Well, someone else came to my mind, except it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It was my own heart saying, it just felt so right to do that. Do it again. Here's another name. So I called them up, and I met with them. I end up, before Christmas, I end up meeting with about nine people. Not because the Holy Spirit was hounding me or making me or God was forcing me. It just felt so right. See, you can get to a place where you hunger and you thirst for righteousness on every level. It, it's so satisfying to be right with God. It's so satisfying to be right with people. So Paul's writing to a church, and he says, Look, a church, major on righteousness, live right, do right, live right with God, live right with each other, and the enemy can't get in. Isn't that powerful? So simple. He said. Verse 15, he says, if you walk in reconciliation, trying to get people to have peace with God, and walking in a kind of reconciliation where you reconcile people to God and and people to people, turning the hearts of children to their fathers, the hearts of fathers to their children, the enemy can't get in. He said, if you're just busy, and everywhere you go, and in your wake is reconciliation, bringing peace. Not a phony kind of cliche, but real, real genuine peace, where everywhere you go, marriages are better. Everywhere you go, brothers are wanting to be back together. Everywhere you go, churches relate to other churches better. Everywhere you go, people are, are being turned to God and to each other. He said, "If you're busy doing that, the devil can't get in." It's funny when I see someone who's always fighting and fussing. I just know that there's not, there's no witness. There's no, they're not reconciling. They're not evangelistic. They're not leading people to Christ. They're not busy getting people connected with the Lord and Him connected with them. They're not busy. And so, what happens is the enemy just gets their 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 whole life spinning out of control. In a negative way, kind of in a downward spiral, and they 're not effective in getting the gospel out and he has them they don 't know it, but he has them. How many times have you che- seen churches that get so focused on the color of the carpet or 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 what mode of uh, so, some some ridiculous thing that we 're going to do in church how and we fight over that, and we spend all the time focused on those things. We're not doing anything to get people reconciled to God. I think our part of our way of keeping free, keeping out of his clutches, keeping his mind games at bay, is by how we live the gospel of peace out towards other people. And if we're evangelistic and we're, we're out there trying to get people reconciled to God, you don't, you don't even have time to, you don't even care about the color of the carpet. You don't care what hymn book you sing out of. You don't. You, it's so much beside the point. <laughs> he loves to get us having a, get spinning out of control on a, on a non-issue, non-eternal issue. He says we need to walk in faith. And so often, what happens is, is our Christianity is so much in our head that it's not coming out of a heart of faith. It's all logical. It's all cerebral. It's, all, it's, all, it's like we're born again from the neck up. And if we stay in our head, he can play with our heads. We've got to go with our heart. Our heart loves faith. Our heart wants to walk by faith. Our heart wants to take risks. Our heart wants to do things that are beyond us, that are, that are out of our control, out of reach beyond our means, beyond our ability. That's where our heart comes alive. Our heart is built for faith. And if we play it safe, we stay in the shallow end of the pool, we'll never grow, we'll never go anywhere. Our life will be boring, our faith will be boring. Nobody will want our faith. There will be nothing contagious about it. And I see it so often. I, I, I see it, I see it in churches where everything is all all worked through at a board level, and it's all safe, it's homogenized. Someone, I think it was John Wimber, he said, how do you spell faith? And he said it's it's spelled this way, R-I-S-K. And without it, we don't do very well. We have to be shooting for something. We can't stay the same. Christian life is defined, it's described in the scripture as like a river. It has to be moving forward. It has to be going somewhere. If it stays the same, there will be scum on the surface. The thing will die. We have to extend faith. I had a lady call me one time and she was a wreck. She was at her wits end. The enemy was just playing with her like a yo-yo, and she was full of fear, anxiety. She could hardly breathe. So I went to her house to pray for her and her husband, and when I began to pray for her, I, I immediately saw her shield was strewn off to the side, and her sword was stuck in the sand. She wasn't using it. And I, I declared, as soon as I saw it, I, I, it was a shock to me. I said, your, your sword is stuck in the sand. Your, your shield, your faith is over there. It's just off to the side. You're not wearing it. The enemy can just play with your head. He can play with you. Pick it up. She realized she wasn't standing in faith. She wasn't using her faith. She wasn't standing declaring prophetically what God had been saying. Somebody has to stand and say, no more. It stops here. Somebody has to step up. Somebody has to catch what the Spirit is saying. If you read it, it's the Spirit's sword. It's not your sword. It's not what you learned in in Bible memorization class, it's not, what, it's not verses that you put away in quizzing. It's not what you learned in Sunday school. That doesn't stop the devil. What stops the devil is what God is saying. He's always speaking. God loves to speak. It's his whole relationship with us is speaking. Our God speaks. Our God speaks. It's called fellowship. For him not to speak, something is seriously wrong. So it means we have to go to him and say, how come you're not talking? Why are you resisting me? What's, what's offended you? What's caused you to turn your face? What's caused you to stop coming down in the cool of the day? What has stopped you from coming and knocking at the door of my heart? To speak. It's normal for God to speak. It's normal. It's part of a shepherd relationship. The sheep, my sheep, hear my voice. He doesn't, uh, people go crazy over it. You know, they get in the grocery store and they ask God whether they should buy beans or peas. And it becomes so ridiculous. But as as, as far as your warfare and as far as you walking with him, he'll speak to you when you're about to miss it and say, this is the way, walk in it when you turn to the right or to the left. He said, if it wasn't so, I would have told you. The reason he could say that is because there's a relationship. One of the first things that goes when Koineas is killed is communication. We stop talking to each other. We start talking about each other. God will turn his face. God will stop speaking. He will withdraw. It's all through Scripture, New Testament, Old Testament. We can't afford to have him not walking among us. That's why Jesus so, so clearly said, listen, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. God wants to speak. He wants to bring perspective. Perspective is everything. Everything. Perspective is everything. Seeing what's happening through his eyes is everything. You can guess. You can fumble. You can bumble. You can make up stuff. You can put your own spin on it, and the enemy will let you. But there's nothing like taking something God has said, getting your hand on that, and standing, and saying, no more. No further. It will stop here. And and you can see it when the devil himself, Satan himself, comes up to Jesus who's by himself and begins to push and suggest and say things. And Jesus turns. And it's not memorization. It's not verses that he's meditated on. It's like when you step back and you let the Holy Spirit bring something out, we need to be a prophetic people. It's not a game. It's everything. And Jesus, Jesus allowed the Holy Spirit within him to bring up an answer. And when he declared it, the devil left. He couldn't stay. He came back around again. The same thing happened. That's called the sword of the Spirit. It's a perfect demonstration of someone stopping the devil from having his way, from having his day with the Word of God. Somebody has to declare it. Notice notice what Satan couldn't do. He couldn't make Jesus do anything. He couldn't push him. He couldn't push him off the pinnacle. See, because there's legal limits to what the devil can do. The devil is limited He cannot just do anything he wants to do. Listen, he can only do things, he can tempt us to a certain degree, but he also has to always, there has to be a way out. He can bring persecution to a certain degree. But he can't just do whatever he wants to do. He can't kill you. He can't kill a church. He can't kill you. He can't destroy you. If he could, you'd be dead by now. If he could, Billy Graham would have never preached. I hear Christians say the most ridiculous things. They say, I was going to go to church, but the devil gave me a flat tire. The devil gave you a flat tire? Yeah, I was just going to go to a prayer meeting, go to church. The devil gave me a flat tire. The devil gave you a flat tire. That means That means he can just give you another flat tire. He, that means you can never go anywhere because he just keep giving you flat tires. What's stopping him? If he can give you one, why not a dozen? One guy came up the steps one time to church, and he said, boy, he says, I was going to give my testimony tonight, and the devil gave me a sore throat. I said, the devil gave you a sore throat? He said, yeah, I was going to give my testimony. I said, brother, your testimony is not that great. It's not that great that the devil would come to you and give you a sore throat. It's a good testimony, but it's not, it's not like it warrants the devil coming in with his bony finger touching your throat. Why do we have to say that? Why do we have to, why do we have to make him bigger than he is? Why do we have to give him more power than what he has? Why do we have to say he has a right to walk into our churches and walk into our homes and just do whatever he wants to do? He can't. He can't. All through scripture, you see him on a very short leash. He goes to heaven and he walks by the throne of God and God says, hey, where you been? What have you been doing? Give an account. Where have you been? He's, well, I've been doing, I've been going here, I've been going there. He's on a very, you know, he can't, he can't even litter on the streets of uh, the courts of God. He can't spray graffiti on the walls of God. He can't say anything to God that's a, in a smart aleck tone. He, he's on a very short leash. He really is. That's part of the, part of the helmet of salvation is knowing legal limits, of what God will and will not do, what you can and cannot do, what the devil can and cannot do. Now, he can drive a truck rate right through a church if, living, if there's unrighteousness. He can, li- he can drive a truck rate right through a church with, filled with pneumonia, filled with explosives. He can wreck a church if, if they're not living a right relationship to each other, and they're not standing the way they should be standing, they're not walking the way they should be walking. But it's not, like, it's not like you have to find 20 things. It's only a handful of things. It's only a few things. But we get so caught up in the non-essentials. We get so caught up in the, in the warfare stuff that just is insane. It's not even biblical. It's not even right. You wouldn't believe the stuff that people believe. They spend all their time. I just I don't I don't spend five minutes on it. I just believe that the king has clothed me with himself, that he's righteousness, he is faith. He doesn't have faith, he is faith. He is the prince of peace. He is my righteousness. He is my salvation. He he, he is the truth. If you clothe yourself in him, he can't stop you. I just believe that I can go anywhere by myself and go into Gentile land and go into some of the filthiest places. If I walk in worship and walk in prayer and walk in what he showed me, there's nothing that the enemy can do to stop me. Persecution can happen to a degree, but there's limits on what he can do. You know who's, who's allowing him to have his way? Us. Somebody has to stand. Having done all to stand. There's a man named Smith Wigglesworth. He was sitting on a public bus one day. The bus driver is waiting for a lady who was hurrying to catch the bus. But her dog was following her. And she'd take five steps and turn around and tell him to shoot and go back home. And, and he would stop. And then when she would turn around to take another five steps, he'd follow right behind her. And she'd finally stop and say, now you go home, you go home. And then she'd try to get on the bus and he'd follow her right down the street. And Smith Wigglesworth is watching the whole thing. Finally, she put her foot down. She said, "Get!" And I went all the way home. And he laughed. He told everyone on the bus, "That's how you deal with the devil. That's how you deal with the devil. Somebody has to stand. Somebody has to say enough. Somebody has to say no more." This was written to a church not just to the individuals of the church, although it applies. You can apply this lots of different ways. We need the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. Verse 18, notice, notice verse 17 is a semicolon. It doesn't end there. It ends with praying, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. If he can get a church to stop praying, if he can get a church to not be a prayerful church, even he can get a church to sing songs but not worship, if he, can t- if he can rob you of your song, he can have you. It's interesting. When he's playing with someone's head, the first thing that they lose is their song. The first thing they lose is their ability to tilt their face toward God and believe for things and ask for great things and trust him for things. In fact, I, I can tell... I can tell that he's got a claw in someone's brain because they'll come and they say, Pastor, would you pray for me? Would you do all my praying for me? They don't quite say it that way. They say, because they have no confidence that he will hear them. They have no confidence. One time, uh, my computer broke. And I took it to a shop. this is before I had a mac and uh it was just breaking break all the time and and uh I took it to a, a shop to be fixed and the guy told me to come back at a specific time of day and he'd have it ready for me and so so I went back and he looked as soon as he looked at me I could see his. Shoulders sag, and his head go down, and I knew he hadn't gotten to my computer. And he felt bad. And he said, I'll tell you what, um, this was at closing time. He said, I'm going to close in just a couple minutes. If you wouldn't mind staying, I'll fix it while you're here. I said, Okay. So he locked the door and he got my computer and he's taking it apart, taking the back off, and getting ready to work at whatever needed to be fixed. And as he's working, we're just talking about, I don't know, weather, business, stuff. And he stopped and he looked at me and he said, uh, There's something different about you. What is it? And I realized, ah the reason my computer is not fixed is I'm locked in this building with this man after hours. It doesn't get any better than this. And I thought, well, I can lead him to the Lord. I said, well, I'm a I'm a born-again Christian. And he says, I knew it. I knew it. You're one of the good guys. I knew it. And he said something about church, and I said, so... Do you go to church? What 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 what's your church? He said, I'm not gonna tell you. I said, You're not gonna tell me? He said, No. As soon as I tell you, that's it, you won't treat me right, you'll you'll reject me, it'll be over. I said, Lord, what is he? And the Lord said, he, He's a Mormon. So I said, You're a Mormon. He said, How'd you know? And I said, Well, you're a Mormon. And he said, He said, Yeah, I'm a Mormon. And he said, I've been a missionary, I'm here in Started this business and he's dropped his tools and he looked at me and I'll never forget this. He said, "Pen, alcohol has never touched my lips. I've never held a cigarette. My wife and I were both virgins when we were married. He said, I tithe more than ten percent. I never miss church. There isn't an evening that goes by that I don't read my children from the Book of Mormon. Then he looked at me with the most haunted eyes, and I I was so shocked to see this. He looked at me and he says, but I'm not right with God. And I don't know how to be right with God. I'm doing everything right but I have no sense of righteousness. And it wasn't until that moment that I put a, a value on my righteousness before I just took it for granted that I could pray anytime, anywhere. I could, The righteous can approach God and there's such a freedom to be able to just turn to Him and talk and ask Him for things. And in my heart, I, I blurted out more to myself than to Him. I said, I, I'm, I'm right with God. I'm right with God. But it's not because I do everything right. It's because he clothed me with a, a gift of righteousness while I'm walking out righteousness. He, it's, it's both. It's not one or the other. He wants us to live right, walk right. But when we're not right, we're covered to a certain degree by the gift of righteousness. If we'll receive it, if we'll embrace it, if we'll wear it, if we'll... Take it. If we don't, the enemy can play with us like a yo-yo. I meet people all the time who he just plays with their head like they have no confidence in their prayers. They have no confidence to raise their hands in worship because they can't approach him freely because they're not understanding that there's a gift of righteousness. That you're as righteous as Jesus in the sight of God, if you'll take it, if you'll use it, if you don't, if you don't believe in it, if you don't take it, if you don't use it, He'll mess with you. So he ends with praying and 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 uh, the word prayer here has to do with worship as well, perseverance, staying with it, staying the course, not quitting. Somebody has to stand up for what's right. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting what he says and what he doesn't say? Isn't it interesting how simple it is? How straightforward it's just a handful of things. It's not it's not a a, a whole list as long as your arm of things you gotta remember and things you gotta do. It's things that Jesus clothed us with himself. Jesus walked in the armor of God. Jesus came by himself and walked in the land of darkness and the shadow of death by himself. He could do it. The reason is is he's right with God. The reason is he is the truth. The reason is he's walking in prayer. He's walking in worship. The reason is he's walking by faith. The reason is he is resting in God's salvation. He knows what the devil can and cannot do. He knows what he can and cannot do. He knows what God will and will not do. He's walking in this armor. Maybe that's why Paul wrote to the Romans. He says, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be clothed with Jesus. Well, how do you do that? You do what Jesus did. Jesus was walking in The gospel of peace, everywhere he went, and the enemy through people, the enemy in the wilderness couldn't get a hold of him. He said, the enemy comes, but he finds nothing in me. He can't get his hooks in me. And that's true of Jesus. It's true of you. And it's true of churches. One pastor called me, he says, I can't do it again. He said, I get this church built up to 100 people. I've done it three times. I can't do it again. I don't have it in me to build this church again. Would you come in and work with us and help us to see what it is that's happening? How is it that we get it up to 100, then we lose everybody? How is it that that's happened? So we sat down and we started talking. We, the first thing we had to do was get honest. Walking the, we had to just put some truth in our belly. David had had something that was very rare. It was called aggressive integrity, where he wouldn't wait to be caught and he wouldn't wait to be found. I mean, I guess he did in one instance, but for the most part, it seemed like he actually took his tunic and opened and said, Lord, shine your light, bring your light, bring your light. Look. See if there's any wicked way within me. Show me. See, because he loved to repent. He loved God's mercy. He rested in God's mercy. So as we sat down with the church, we just realized that they offended a lot of people. There's a long list of people that they didn't relate to anymore. Well, it's not right. And they just started getting busy, reconciling everything they can reconcile humbling themselves. One pastor friend of mine took over a church, and the church was dead. It was dead. There was no life, small runt of a church that just never grew. And he called me. He said, here I am. I'm pastoring this church. I can't do it anymore. Something has to happen. He's pressing into God, and here's what he decides to do. (laughs) He said, I'm calling you. And I'm calling every pastor I know in an hour's radius of our church to apologize for our church, to apologize for the condition of our church, that we're in the legalism, we are splitting and fragmenting, we are fighting, we've ruined people's lives with our legalism and our, what we thought were standards. And it wasn't, he's the new pastor, It wasn't on his watch. It's what happened in the previous pastorates. So he called me. and said, I just want to apologize. I want to make things right with God. I I want to get back, get our church back under the blessing of God. And that guy, he went and he walked throughout the entire village and he knocked on every door in town and said, I'm the pastor in town of the church, the stone church here in the corner. Before you say anything, I just want to apologize for our witness. I want to apologize for how we've lived our life. It's not the way Christians should live. It's wrong. We're sorry. We regret it. Please forgive us. And he went from house to house, door to door. took him months to go through every step he could take. I don't know what you need to do or what my church needs to do. I have to get that from the Lord. I have to find out what he... You know what? That church now is the largest church in that whole region. I don't know how many services they have. They got a bigger building. They have, in fact, they, have, they meet in about f- four different locations. It's the largest church. Thousands of people relate to that church. And it went from nothing to something. And it's not the numbers of everything, but I'll tell you, God opened a window. He opened a, win- a window over that church, and something fresh came in something that people wanted. Now, I don't know, and I'll just tell you this. Let me just be truthful here. I don't know what's going on down here. Tammy never said anything. Butch and I just met in the aisle here. We haven't talked. Besides, have you heard him talk? He doesn't talk. <laughs> he doesn't talk a whole lot. And I've never heard him in all my years of being with I've never heard him say a bad thing about anybody ever. Pastor Tim hasn't said anything, but I know something's not working here. But if you will pray, if you'll get honest, raw honest, honest till it hurts, it could be turned around. I keep getting the sense that the enemy's just been playing with you like a yo-yo. He's just been having his way. And it doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to happen. You have to find out what to do. And it's not guessing. In fact, we already sang about everything about it tonight. It's hearing from God. And I believe He can speak to you as a people. But something's not right. And it has to change. Right? Having done all, we stand. Shoulder to shoulder, we put our feet in the ground, and we say, no more. If something is going to give here, it's darkness, not light. It's the devil, not God. Resist the devil, and he will flee But he can do what he has a legal right to do if God doesn't give it to him, like in the case of Job, that's a legitimate example. And someone else has given him permission. And that comes back to us. This is a good church. I remember when it started. I was one of the first speakers when it turned over to Gateway. I celebrated with you. I think I was in um, when, somewhere in the first month that you guys were meeting down here. This is a good church. It has a purpose in this community. It has a mandate from God. But we have to do that. We have to find it. We have to do it. We have to stay with it. And somebody has to stand. Amen? I've said enough because I don't know what I'm talking about. Except, I love you. I have friends here, the people that I care about here. Let's stand together. Father, I thank you for this church. It was in your heart. I believe you restarted it. I've rejoiced to see this work begin. I know your eyes did as well. I remember the joy, the electric, sense of electricity that was in the place. Father, I'm asking you cause this church to shine, that you would pour in fresh oil, fresh grace, that you would illumine what needs to be illumined. Lord, there'd be no guessing. I'm asking, Father, that you'd send light. that this church would be a light. This is a dark place and it needs a good church. Lord, pour in whatever it takes to make a difference in this community. In the name of Jesus.